0: Our God is bigger than the biggest words we could ever string together to describe him. Our God is greater than the greatest lyrics and melodies that we could ever sing in worship to him. Our God is more magnificent than any masterpiece of a message we could ever preach about him. Our God is omniscient and omnipotent, and omnipresent. The theologians like those kind of words. They simply said, he is all-knowing, he is all-powerful, and he is everywhere present and nowhere absent. You can't get away from him. That's scary if you're a sinner. That's a blessing if you're a child of God. There's nowhere you can go that you can't get away from his presence. He is timeless, and he is ageless, and he is changeless. Our God is ever living and never dying. Our God sits on an everlasting throne, and the Bible says that his kingdom has no end. So you could take a passel of big words, and you wouldn't come close. He is unparalleled and unprecedented. He is matchless. And he is limitless. He's indescribable. And you can bend your brain around his word, but he's quite incomprehensible. He is irresistible. He is invincible. One songwriter said he's untamable and uncontainable. You see, when we talk about this God, our God, your God, my God, there was nobody before him and there'll be nobody after him. All the power, all the glory, and all the praise belongs to him because he is God all by himself. And for precisely this reason, the Old Testament scriptures, as beautiful and meaningful and powerful as they are, they fall far short in their attempt to adequately describe God's glory and his majesty They travel far, but they can't quite make the journey. They dig deep as they can, but they only scratch the surface. They reach high, but they can't quite go the distance. You see, in the Old Testament, the scriptures call on God, but they can't quite decide what to call God because the Old Testament scriptures are absolutely incapable of containing the essence of God in just one revelatory name. And that's why thousands of theologians have spent millions of hours and countless generations studying what they call the compound names of God. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, we read, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Many of the compound names of God are built around that word there, uh, El or Elohim. Now Elohim is a plural word, but Elohim always appears with singular verbs and singular adjectives, and that's because Elohim doesn't refer to a plurality of persons. It doesn't mean there's more than one God or a multiplicity of gods or even a trinity of gods. Elohim is a plural word, but it doesn't refer to plurality of persons. The Jews would teach that it could refer to a plurality of majesty. That's why our queen for 70 years, Queen Elizabeth, would always speak of herself in the plural. It is pleases us, or we would. It's called the royal we. And so the Jews teach that uh, Elohim, a plural word, could refer to a plurality of majesty because God speaks on behalf of his entire kingdom. He speaks on behalf of so many different attributes. But Elohim could be plural, the Jews teach us, because it refers to a plurality of intensity. Because in the Hebrew language, if you say something in the plural form, it makes it stronger. Or if you say something in a repeated form, it makes it stronger. And that's why if you flip open in your Bible in the Old Testament to Isaiah 6 and 3, you'll see a bunch of angels around the throne of God and they keep saying over and over, holy, holy, holy. Because if you pluralize a word or if you repeat a word, it makes it stronger. So Elohim... This name for God in the beginning, Elohim created the heaven and the earth. It refers to a plurality of powers or majesty or even the intensity of worship. And that's why L occurs in so many compound names of God. And I, I won't bore you with the details. Uh, we could get far afield in this, but there are many compound names of God built around L. There's El Haim, which is the living God. There's El Deot, the God of knowledge, and there's El Echad. We know that one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is El Echad. He is the one God. El Emet, the God of truth. El Hagadol, the great God, and El Hakadosh, the holy God. There are many of these. El Hakavod, the God of glory. There's El Haniman, the faithful God, and El Hashamayim, the God of the heavens, and there's El Kano, the jealous. God and El Kadem, the eternal God. There's El Mazui, which is God of strength. There's El Mishfat, the God of justice. And this one's neat. El Olam, the everlasting God, or you could translate that, the God of everlasting time, which means while you are confined to time, He is not. You can pray here in the present, and the eternal God, the God of everlasting time, can slip out of time, go into your past, and fix something that you never possibly could have fixed, and turn your greatest mistake into your greatest miracle or your greatest trial into your greatest testimony. Or while you're worshiping him here in the present tonight, he can slip out of time. He's not confined by that. He can go into your future where you can't get. You're worried about it. You're anxious about it. And he can pull down mountains and he can build up valleys and <clears throat> he can make a way where there was no way and he, he can prepare the way before you because he's the God of everlasting time. He, he is that everlasting God. He's El Rahum, the merciful God, and El Royi, the God who sees me, and he's El Selechut, the God of forgiveness, and El Shaddai, we know that, the almighty God. El Salih, God my rock. El Talihati, God of my praise. El Sadiq, the righteous God. El Tzur, the God our rock. El Yerushalem, the God of Jerusalem. El Yisrael, the God of Israel. And El Yeshua, the God of my salvation. That probably sounds familiar to you and it should. Now that's the El prefix. Many compound names. See all of those, there's a lot of them. That's not even all of them, but there's a lot of those compound names of God. What that is, is the Old Testament, it can't settle on one revelatory name of God. He's too vast, he's too big, he's too magnificent. He, he, he blows your mind if you think about him. So the Old Testament can't just settle on one name of God, so it throws dozens at you, and many of them are built around El or Elohim. And then in Exodus, there's this revelation at the burning bush. God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. Other compound names in the Old Testament are built around I am that I am. And we've studied this recently. It's YHVH, the name of God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. Theologians call that the tetragrammaton or the four letters, Yad, He, Vav, He. Uh, in its original form, that name is totally unpronounceable. But the Jews added Hebrew vowel sounds and they said Yahweh or Yavé. Our English Bible adds English vowel sounds. And so that's where we come up with the name Jehovah. Or simply our Bible will substitute the word Lord. You'll see this all the way through the Old Testament. When you see the word Lord and it's all capitals, L-O-R-D, all capitals, it is a substitute. It is telling you that the original name of God revealed to Moses at the burning bush is what you're reading. Before the burning bush, God actually says in his word, I was only known by the L compound names before the burning bush, but after the burning bush, he was also known by the name Jehovah or Yahweh or YHVH. So it's Moses that looks back and by inspiration of God's spirit, he actually wrote the first five books of the Bible. And so when he looks back, Even though that name hadn't been revealed, you'll see it inserted in Genesis and Exodus in the first five books. Uh, But here's what God said to Moses. God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. That's Yahweh or Yahweh. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name God Almighty. I appeared unto them by the name El Shaddai, God Almighty. It was one of the L compound names. But by my name Jehovah, by my name YHVH, by the Tetragrammaton, by my holy, ineffable, unpronounceable, magnificent name, was I not known to them. So Moses, when he writes those first five books of the Bible by inspiration of the scripture, uh, of the spirit rather, when he writes that scripture, he actually goes back and he inserts some of these L names, uh, some of these J-H-V-H names in those scriptures. And so we see names like this, uh, Jehovah Elohim, the Lord, our creator, and Jehovah El Elyon, the Lord, the most high God. That's why you can never worship God loud enough, long enough, with, any, with, with too much exuberance, because he's the most high God. You, you can't praise him high enough, so we just make a stab at it. We just make an attempt at it. He's Jehovah Adonai, the Lord, the master. Jehovah El Olam, the, the Lord, the everlasting God you know this one. He said it to Abraham on Mount Moriah. Uh, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord my provider. Now I have a little bit of confidence that I'm talking to some people that once in a while in your life, God has stepped in and provided for a need. He's, he's given you a miracle. He's given you provision. So we know that name very well. We know this name very well. Jehovah Rapha, I am the Lord that healeth thee. So he's known in the Old Testament as the Lord my healer. He's known as Jehovah Nisi, the, the Lord my banner or the Lord my miracle. He's known as Jehovah Mekadesh, the Lord our sanctifier and Jehovah Shalom, the Lord my peace. Jehovah Shaphat the Lord the judge. He's known as Jehovah Sidkenu the Lord our righteousness. I'm not here to night because I'm righteous enough to deserve to be part of his church. I'm here because he is my righteousness. He is Jehovah Rea, the Lord my shepherd. He is Jehovah Hosinu, the Lord our maker. He is Jehovah Gibor, the Lord, the mighty God. And he's even called Jehovah Shama, which is the Lord is there. Wherever you are, there he is. Wherever you go, there he goes. You can't get in a night so dark or a valley so deep, but what you can't look around and God is right there with you. So I I know for some of you, you're thinking, oh goodness, here we are in like theology class, Hebrew class, but we're not. There are many other instances in the Old Testament when compound names, either the L names or the Jehovah names are used to describe God. But in light of the Christmas season coming up, I wanna concentrate on just one of those names tonight. But before I go there, we need to go here. I need to emphasize this for you. In the New Testament, you don't have to struggle or wonder what name to call your God. (laughs) It's not like losing your car keys. Oh my goodness, where are my keys? Where is my phone? What name do I call him? I'm about to have a car accident. Do I call him God my rock? No, I'm about ready to hit a rock. Do I call him God my healer? No, that's later. Do I call, what do I call him? You don't have to worry about that. Because in the New Testament... Who? God accompanied the revelation of himself when he came and robed himself in flesh. He accompanied that revelation with a new name. That name who is Jesus and it includes and enfolds and supersedes Elohim and Jehovah and every other compound name of God Jesus is the redemptive revealed name of God in the New Testament Jesus is the name of all power and all authority Jesus is the only saving name it is the only name given for remission of sins it is the highest greatest strongest name ever revealed so there's only one compound name for God revealed in the New Testament in Hebrew it would be Jehovah Jehoshua Messiah in Greek it would be Kyrios Jesus Christos but in English it's Lord Jesus Christ when you say Jesus you've said it all When you say Jesus, you've called on every Old Testament compound name of God, every attribute, every power, every bit of authority. It's the highest and the greatest name. So you're never worshiping a God and wasting your time. You are never praying to God and just filling up space. Anytime you call the name of Jesus, you're tackling the enemy and you're calling down heaven. I know you're seated and that's what freaks out the devil. Would you lift up your hands and your voice and would you give God a great loud praise to the name that is above every other name, the revealed name, the saving name, the delivering name, the name of Jesus. Yes, yes. Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua or Yahshua in Hebrew. Jesus literally means Yahweh is salvation. That's why Isaiah said this. It's a little strange when you think about it. Hebrew pulled into English, but then it's not strange at all. It's powerful. He said, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah, that's Y-H-V-H, that's Yahweh. The Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. Jehovah, he also is become my salvation, my Yeshua. Yeshua is Jesus, only in Hebrew. So the Old Testament prophet 600 years before the first Christmas that we celebrate at this time of the year, that old prophet six centuries earlier said, Jehovah has become my Jesus. That's what he said. Yahweh has become my Yahashua, my Savior, my Jesus. Jehovah is salvation. That's why Paul could write in the New Testament, for in him, in Jesus, in that one that walked the shores of Galilee, in that one that was born in a manger in Bethlehem, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Whew, My goodness, that's the introduction. I'm already feeling good. Okay, let's get to the sermon here. Most of the Old Testament compound names of God are not introduced dramatically. They're not introduced like YHVH to Moses at the burning bush. They're not introduced dramatically like Jehovah Jireh to Abraham on Mount Moriah. Rather, most of the compound names of God that appear in the pages of the Old Testament, they appear almost subtly in the pages of Scripture. They're revealed as God's people just interact with his presence and as God's people just reach out to pray to him or to worship him. And as they worship his name, every once in a while, you'll see it on the pages of the Old Testament, a new compound name of God will be revealed because they've encountered something new from God that he's doing for them that he hasn't ever done before. It's amazing. God's still doing new stuff in our generation. And so that is the case with a couple named Elkanah and Hannah, Elkanah and Hannah, they became the parents of the great prophet Samuel. When this name of God was revealed to them, Elkanah was just going about his business. He was just making his annual trip to worship at the tabernacle, which was then located in Shiloh. That's when this name of God first appears in the Bible. And Hannah, well, she's just praying a prayer that she has prayed so many times before. And at this point, it is still an unanswered prayer. It's totally unanswered. God has not come through for her at the point where we join their story. At the point we jump in, it's still a source of great heartbreak to her. But God is about to intervene in their situation. And here it is, just everyday life, God's people serving him, God's people praying to him, God's people going to worship him. And in everyday life, God reveals himself to his people. He's still doing that today. First Samuel one and verse three. And this man, Elkanah, he went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts. Someone say the Lord of hosts. That's the name there. Looks like a collection of words in English, but it's a name in Hebrew unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priest of the Lord were there. And then if you skip down to verse 11, same story. Hannah has been praying for a son forever and it's a source of great heartbreak. But she hears her husband probably talking to the Lord of hosts. And so she gets in on the act and she vowed a vow and said, oh Lord of hosts, somebody say Lord of hosts if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid, and if you'll just remember me, God, And if you'll just not forget thine handmaid but give unto thine handmaid a man child, I'll give him to the Lord all the days of his life. He'll be a Nazarite. There shall no razor come upon his head. I will give that boy. If you'll just give me a son, I will give him totally to you. And before this story is over, God does hear that prayer. God does give them a son. That boy grows up to be the greatest prophet of the Old Testament probably. Samuel holds that kingdom together for generations. And Samuel Samuel, the Bible says about him, God let none of his words fall to the ground. If Samuel spoke it, it came to pass 100% of the time. So God answered that prayer. Now the compound name of God that is here, Lord of hosts, in Hebrew it is Jehovah Sabaoth. And Sabaoth uh, is Lord of hosts in English, Jehovah Sabaoth. And it will eventually, this name right here, will eventually make more than 260 appearances in the Old Testament scripture. Most of them will be in the writings of the prophets, Jeremiah and Isaiah and Zechariah and Haggai and Malachi. They especially love this name, the Lord of hosts. Now, Sabaoth is a military word. And so sometimes it's translated as armies, And always it means to wage war. So when you say Jehovah Sabaoth, you're saying God is our captain or God is our commander. He is in supreme control of the vast hosts of heaven. The prophet Daniel in the Old Testament and the apostle John in the New Testament, they both caught a glimpse of these innumerable angelic, Armies. You can't imagine what they saw. They struggled to put it in words. Daniel says, thousand thousands ministered unto him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And John says essentially the same thing in Revelation 5. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. That's not a math equation. That is a Hebrew expression saying, we just can't comprehend that number. The writer of Hebrews simply describes them in Hebrews 12, as, quote, an innumerable company of angels. And when his terrified servant came to Elisha and said, Elisha, old prophet of God, the mighty Syrian army has surrounded your humble little house and they're about ready to break down the door and come in and kill you or take you. That old man of God, without one quaver in his voice, without one quiver in his nerves, he looked back at that servant and he replied with calm assurance because he knew something that that younger servant didn't know. And here's what the old prophet Elisha answered. He could see something that that young man couldn't see. He answered, fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I just want to pray something simple. I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. Nothing had changed except now he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. That Syrian king and all of his armies couldn't have taken Elisha if they had worked at it for a solid year. Because round about that prophet were the angelic armies of the Lord of hosts. So you say, that's Old Testament. Oh no, it works the same. See, our God never changes. He is yesterday and today and forever the same. If I could just tell you, I know you look around and it seems bleak sometimes and it seems hard sometimes and I know you look around and it puzzles your mind and it baffles your emotions and it sags on your spirit until you almost become depressed. But if God would open your eyes, you would see something that they... that. That are with you are greater and more numerous than they that are against you. That's a beautiful, sanctified golf clap. But if you could have your eyes opened, you would see that this Jesus that you were worshiping tonight and you thought you were doing him a favor, know why you were worshiping him. He was doing you countless favors. He's not only keeping you alive, giving you breath to breathe, pumping the blood through your body. uh, He's not only doing that stuff. He's at work in your situation. He's at work on your prayers that you've been praying. They that are with us are more than they that are with them. So here's the point tonight. Several of the new translations and paraphrases of the scripture, they accurately translate Jehovah Sabaoth as God of the angel armies. That's a nice title. I like that. What a magnificent image that when you worship Jesus, you are worshiping Jehovah Sabaoth. You are worshiping the God of the angel armies. And since the angel armies are innumerable, you can't fathom his greatness. You can't fathom his power. You can't fathom his authority. You can't fathom his ability to just go there and it's over. You can't fathom his ability to say healed and it's done. You can't fathom his ability to say delivered and it's all over for the devil and it's just begun for the people of God. You can't fathom it. Because the angel armies are innumerable. it's a magnificent image. The angel armies stand ready to do God's bidding at any moment. But God isn't interested in wasting his mighty innumerable angel armies just to show off. He has given them a special assignment. This is what blows our minds. The angel armies are commissioned especially to minister to the people of God. Psalm 103, we sang part of it. We sang the beginning tonight. Here's the end of it. Bless the Lord, ye his angels, that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of his word. Bless ye the Lord, watch, all ye his Hosts, you innumerable company of angels, the angel armies all over the universe, you ministers of His that do His pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Maybe that'll give you a little more ammunition the next time you sing a song like that to reach down into your spirit and say, with a God like that who commands the angel armies that run the universe, with a God like that, I can reach down inside and say, hey, bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holiness name. The psalmist said it like this, the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. The devil can't get to me. The devil can't get to you. He can only ask permission from God to tempt you or trouble you, just like happened in the book of Job. There's a reason that the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible, chronologically speaking, because it deals not only with pain and sickness and suffering, which is the human condition, but the book of Job deals with the limited authority of Satan and the almighty, all-powerful authority of God. The devil can't get to me. I am surrounded by the angels of the Lord. They don't do my bidding. I don't pray to angels. I don't command angels. There was a bunch of foolish books a few years ago, people sitting in their living room having coffee with angels and talking to them saying, go here and do that. Those people are delusional. And that's a nice word for them. I don't command angels. I don't talk to angels, but I'll tell you what I can do. I can talk to Jesus, and he's the God of the angel armies, and he can say, over there. He can say, do that. He can say, go right now, and it's done. (laughs) The angel of the Lord encamps round about them that fear him. I'm stronger than I look. I am bigger a bigger threat to hell than you would ever dream because I've got God's angels encamped round about me. Hebrews chapter one. Are the angels not all ministering spirits? Here's their job. Here's their commission. Sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. So no, we don't pray to angels, but we pray to Jesus. And he can send an angel with a hand of healing and lay it on you and your disease evaporates in one second. He can send an angel to fight your enemies and you can be delivered from a terrible time of trouble in just a moment or two. He can send protecting guardian angels. He can send them in. I remember Brother Howell talking about being a missionary in El Salvador and they came up to some kind of roadblock where there are all kinds of people, uh, guerrillas with guns, and it was a time of civil war, terrible tumult in the country, and, and God sent angels. They just lifted the car and pushed it over all of those people and they just kept on driving down the road. Now you say, that's impossible. Not when you serve the God of the angel armies. He just says guys, four of you, go grab one corner of that car. Each one of you, lift it up, keep them going. That's our missionary. That's my servant. Oh. You have no idea what the angels that are watching over you have the capacity and the capability to do. Don't pray to them. Don't try to imagine them. Just fix your mind on Jesus. The psalmist said, oh God, my heart is fixed on you. And when you pray to him, he can send them to do amazing things. And that's why God's people in both testaments, old and new, they were transformed the moment they recognized that the God of the angel armies was fighting for them, when they realized that, instantly they became fearless and courageous because they knew that Jehovah Sabaoth, the God of the angel armies, was on their side. It was simply a matter of perspective. Here's a little equation. If you got a small God, you got big problems. But if you got a big God, you've only ever got small problems. And that was the perspective. You see, once they realized that the God of the angel armies was fighting for them, the imposing walls of Jericho were no longer insurmountable. And conquering the promised land was no longer unattainable. And battling much, much larger armies, that was no longer unthinkable. Facing down the false prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth and Molech, that was no longer inconceivable because the the God of the angel armies was fighting for them. Surviving a lion's den, impossible. No, No longer unbelievable when the God of the angel armies can send an angel and say, hold that beast's mouth closed for a little while. I've got a prophet in there. Being delivered from a fiery furnace, that's no longer unimaginable because the God of the angel armies walks with his people. Even killing a great big threatening giant, that was no longer impossible because David knew something when he stepped out on that battlefield in the Valley of Elah. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, aren't you tough? But I come to thee, watch, in the name Jehovah Sabaoth, in the name of the Lord of hosts, in the name of the God of the angel armies, the God of the armies of Israel whom thou hast defied. You set yourself up for a fall, Goliath and all you Philistines, because you're not just defying the armies of Israel, you're defying the God of all the angel armies. You're in. big trouble and you don't even know it. And that was one day in David's life, but let me tell you, David, he didn't just luck out. He he didn't just have good luck all his life. The Bible says in 1st Chronicles, David waxed greater and greater. For Jehovah Sabaoth, the God of the angel armies, was with him. No wonder he was blessed. No wonder his enemies just laid down in defeat on every side of him. No wonder David's kingdom was the golden age of Israel because the God of the angel armies was with David. That's wonderful. But that's Old Testament. Can I tell you the same God of the angel armies is with you. You may not live in a palace, but the God of the angel armies, he's for you. He's with you. He can deliver you. He can do the miraculous for you. Pastor Jack loves this psalm. I've heard him preach from this a dozen times. Lift up your heads, O ye gates and be ye lift up ye everlasting doors and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? Well, he's the Lord strong and mighty. He's the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up ye everlasting doors and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? Let me tell you. He's Jehovah Sabaoth. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the God of the angel armies. He is the king of glory. No wonder pastor gets up here and says, let's worship the Lord. No wonder the worship team says, why don't we lift our hands? No wonder we get in here and we pray and we praise and we worship. We're worshiping the all-powerful, ever-living, never-dying God. He's the God of all the hosts of heaven. We're just a little piece of his kingdom, but he pays attention to us and he receives our worship. We worship the God of the angel Hermes. Oh my goodness. Isaiah the prophet, I love him. He said, Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so shall it come to pass, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand. Basically, the prophet said, if God decided to do it, you can't prevent it. If God decided to go for it, you can't stop it. If God decided to speak it, you can't refute it. Isaiah said in chapter 44, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, Jehovah Sabaoth, the God of the angel armies. Here's what He said, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Listen, if there's no God beside Him, there's no contest. If there's no God beside Him, there's no enemy that can prevail. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the God of the angels angel armies nobody can stand before our god <laughs> ha, you know this scripture Zechariah recorded it when zerubbabel's trying to lead the people in restoration then he answered and spake unto me saying this is the word of the lord unto zerubbabel saying not by might nor by power But by my spirit saith Jehovah Sabaoth, saith the Lord of hosts, saith God of the angel armies. Zerubbabel, I know you've got enemies trying to distract you and trying to take you down and trying to knock out everything that you are trying to do for my people. I know they're on every side. I know they never shut up. I know they're trying to torment you. But you listen to me, Zerubbabel. It's not by your might and it's not by your power, but is by my spirit. Because my spirit, I am the God of the angel armies. I direct the hosts of heaven to fight for you and to work with you. Huh, whoo, I need to transition here. So would you just lift up a praise to the Lord and then we'll try to do a little Christmas and go home. Thank you, Jesus. I wish you'd lift it loud and high with great boldness and just give God praise in this room. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. God of the angel armies. If you could just see him for who he really is. If you could just see him for what power he really has. They that are with us are more than they that are against us. Oh, my, my, my. Oh, it's our old hobby horse, but it's a good verse. Oh, clap your hands, all ye people, and shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Why? Because you're on the winning side. You're on the triumphant side. You're on the side that is governed and ruled by the God of the angel armies. That's why. That's why. Oh, Every year, every year in our commemoration of Christmas, we sing beloved carols. Some of the carols we will sing over the next couple of weeks, they are filled with powerful theology, while others only contain sentimental tradition. Hark the herald angels sing is one such character, one, one such character, well, yeah, that too. One such carol. Because the Bible never says that the angels sang at Jesus' birth. Angels, you see, brothers and sisters, are much more about fighting than singing. They're more comfortable in an army than in a choir. Angels are equal parts warriors and worshipers. So while they didn't sing at Jesus' birth, they surely did worship at Jesus' birth. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. I'm reminded of a scripture in my mind. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. Now that verse is talking about us, but I can imagine those angels, they're comfortable lopping the head off a demon and saying, holy, 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 at the same time. They're equal parts worshiper and warrior. And so they didn't sing at Jesus' birth. The Bible never says that. And we will still sing, hark the herald angels sing, and we'll feel anointed but it ain't true. Only two times does the scripture tell us that the angels actually sang. Once when the world was created at the beginning of the Bible, the book of Job records when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The angels sang when the earth was created at the beginning of the Bible. But the next time we see the angels singing is when the world is redeemed at the end of the Bible. And they sung a new song. The angels, the four and twenty elders, lead off the great hosts of heaven, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, because God thou wast slain and has redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation question for you. They're singing to the God who sits on the throne and they're telling him in this song, you were slain and you redeemed us by your blood. Who in the world could that almighty eternal God on the throne of eternity ever be except for the Lord Jesus Christ who redeemed us by his own blood and he's worthy to take the book because he was slain, he died for us. So the angels sing at the beginning when the world is created, and they sing at the end of the scripture when the world is finally redeemed. But in between, because the curse of sin is so active in our world, and because evil is winning on every hand, and because the devil holds so much power over the human race, Right now, the angel armies aren't singing. They're fighting. They're fighting for you. They're fighting for that backslider that you've been praying for. They're fighting for your kids that you pray over every day. They're fighting for your precious little grandchildren that you call their names. And you ask Jesus to protect them and keep them. And my prayer for my children and my grandchildren has always been, God put a heart in them that cries out after you. And those angels, they're not singing right now. It's not time to sing yet. They sang at creation and they'll sing when everything winds up in earth's final redemption but right now they are doing battle for the people of God. That's why prayer is important. It engages God and God engages the angel armies. That's why worship is so powerful. It engages God and he is the captain of the host. He is the God of the angel armies. Now you would think that with all his power that the God of the angel armies would just attack or at least intervene. You would think with all of this at his disposal he would just step in and turn back the tide of evil and push back the forces of darkness and just overnight win the victory, win the day for his church. He certainly could, And we would say, well, God, you certainly should. But in saying that, we're forgetting something about the God of the angel armies. In the New Testament, in the New Testament, he didn't come as a captain or a commander. He came as a child. With one nod of his head, with one word from his lips, With one motion of his little finger, Jesus could have unleashed the hosts of heaven at any moment during the time he lived on earth. Just one command, just one order, just one decree. And the angel armies, the hosts of heaven would have immediately rushed to his side. At any moment during the 33 and a half years Jesus lived on our planet, the angel armies could have delivered him and decimated his enemies. After all, they're there all the time. The angels appeared in the sky at his birth in Bethlehem. They ministered to him after his temptation in the wilderness. They sustained him during his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. They showed up to roll the stone away from his tomb. And they freaked out some of his disciples when they announced his resurrection. And then the angels appeared again as Jesus triumphantly ascended into heaven. And so you listen to me, the angels, the angel armies, the hosts of heaven could have been instantly, powerfully at his side at any moment. After all, He was Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, for heaven's sake. He was the God of the angel armies robed in flesh. It's amazing power. I'm sorry. And he's here tonight by that same power, with that same authority, to go to war for his people. But it's very obvious in Scripture. You don't have to be a brilliant theologian. You don't have to be a long-tenured Bible scholar. It's very obvious in Scripture that the one time, the one time that the angels needed, that Jesus needed the angels the most, the one time he needed them the most, it was the one time that he didn't call them at all. The one time he should have, he didn't. The one time that we would think, call them Jesus, fix this Jesus, he didn't call them. He could have, maybe he should have, but he did not. He has just been betrayed by Judas, and he's just been left all alone to agonize in prayer by his sleeping disciples who are, yes, that unconcerned. And now he's being arrested by an angry mob in the garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is God in the flesh. So he knows that a scourging in Pilate's judgment hall and a crucifixion on Calvary's cross, he knows that those tortures await him in the next few hours. And he does nothing. He says nothing. He could have called the angel armies, but he didn't. And of course, it's impetuous Peter who jumps into the confusion and just starts swinging his sword. And that is when Jesus speaks up. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father and he shall presently give me more than Twelve legions of angels, I command the angel armies. I command the hosts of heaven. I am Jehovah Sabaoth in a body of flesh. I am the God of the angel armies in a humble disguise, robed in a body of flesh. Don't you understand if I said one word, if I gave one nod, if I pointed one finger, the legions of heaven, the angel armies, the hosts of the universe would show up and it would be no battle, no contest at all. But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? And when you read that, doesn't matter if you read it at Christmas or Easter or any time in between, if you know anything about how powerful God is, if you know anything about the man Christ Jesus, the mighty God in Christ, the God-man deity robed in humanity, if you know any of that theology at all, you read that passage in the Garden of Gethsemane and you just have this question screaming in your spirit, where are the angel armies? Why didn't they spring into action? Why don't they defend Jesus? Why don't the hosts of heaven rescue their commander in chief? You make no mistake, the angel armies were there. They were standing by, they were standing guard, they were standing strong but they were standing down. They were totally aghast at what they beheld. The creator being abused by his own creation. Deity being tortured by humanity. The God of the angel armies arrested by an insignificant ragtag band of temple soldiers. It wasn't right. It didn't seem possible, but it was happening. The God of the angel armies, tied up, trussed up, carted away, abused, misused, pummeled and beaten, slapped, pierced, whipped, crucified, killed. (laughs) Because if he had called... If he had nodded, if he had gestured, the angel armies would have showed up in a heartbeat. And he would have saved himself, but lost all of us. We needed a savior, not a commander. We needed a redeemer, not a conqueror. How else, how else could the scriptures have been fulfilled? How else could we have been saved? Brothers and sisters, I'm not in the wrong time of the year. Calvary was the point of Christmas. He was born to die so that we might live. We love him because he first Loved us. Paul calls it the great condescension. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, he humiliated himself, and he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also. Hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. We worship him because his name is powerful, but his name is powerful because he laid aside his power and he robed himself in flesh and he was born in a manger and he gave his life for us. Calvary is the point of Christmas. Would you love him for a moment? However that looks for you, however that sounds for you, however that feels for you, would you love this God who loved you so much?